Albert Einstein, Richard Branson, Bill Gates, John F. Kennedy, Tony Robbins, Michael Phelps, Will Smith. That sounds like a list of highly successful titans in a variety of industries. What else do they have in common? Well, they all have ADHD, but you don't hear much about that, do you? You know what you hear even less about? The successful women navigating ADHD. And that's exactly why I started this podcast, ADHD for Smartass Women. I'm your host, Tracy Otsuka. I'm an attorney, not a doctor, a lifelong student, not a coach. I'm also the creator of Cortography, a patent pending system that helps people like you figure out what they should do with their life. And we're here today to talk ADHD, your superpowers, your symptoms, your workarounds, and how you proudly stand out instead of trying to fit in. I credit my ADHD for some of my greatest superpowers. And you know what? I spy a happier life for you too. So without further ado, a shiny new episode is starting now. Hello, I am Tracy Otsuka, and I wanted to welcome you to episode 64 of ADHD for Smartass Women. In this episode, I am going to introduce you to Francesca Joy Rizzo. Francesca Rizzo labels herself a multimedia artist expressing powerful, provocative ideas in funny human ways. It may seem simple until you find out that the multiple media she has distinguished herself in range from the fine arts and interior design to her work as an award-winning actor, writer, producer, and director in theater, film, television, and digital media. Her powerful and provocative ideas are fueled by her mission to explore, illuminate, and celebrate the female experience with passion, humor, and imagination, and a belief that the way the world sees women becomes the way the world treats women. So we need to unleash a flood of female creativity to even things out. Her story? As a college dropout, she left New Jersey and struck out on her own at 19, mining her creative talents for skills she could use to pay the rent in New York City. Along the way, she carved out a career as a children's book illustrator, professional actor, co-founder of a downtown theater company, and eventually as a filmmaker and CEO of Movie Baby Productions, a Tribeca-based media company creating innovative videos, independent films, and TV promotional campaigns. When she lost Movie Baby and her Manhattan apartment after 9-11, she landed back in Jersey and went back to the basics, earning her degree in media arts as well as the SUNY Chancellor's Award for Student Excellence. While making her mark in the fine arts and in interior design, she penned and performed three theatrical productions, curated the Cinema Femina film series, and created Believe Women, a rape act activist initiative that championed the Cosby survivors, that's Bill Cosby, along their journey to justice. I know Francesca Rizzo as Franny. She is one of the founding members of ADHD for Smartass Women, and she is now one of our administrators. She is so brilliant, so damn funny. Actually, she's more clever, smart, and funny. And I regularly introduce her as the most creative woman that I know, frankly, the most creative human that I know. You know, I've talked about her in my podcast, and I've actually had women request to join ADHD for Smartass Women's Facebook group because they wanted to meet Fran. Did you know that, Fran? <laughs> no, I had no idea. <laughs> and it's happened more than once. So welcome. Well, I'm, I'm happy to be here. I am delighted to have you. So we're just going to dive right in. Okay. I want to talk to you about ADHD first because, you know, that's why we're here. So I'd love to know when you were diagnosed and what the circumstances were around it. Um, I think it was about 20 years ago and I started to, I think it was after I quit smoking because uh, smoking was actually medicating my ADHD for 30 some years. And when I quit, I, I went to hell in a handbasket and I just lost all control of myself. And uh, so I went to a psychiatrist and he asked me a very interesting question. He said, you know, what, what's your background in drugs, you know, from like recreational, like in college and all that. And I said, well, I, I really was never into them. I didn't really like pot because it made me feel stupid. But I did uh, remember taking 
black beauties, <laughs> which were, I guess, diet pills back in, back in the time to study. You know, we all did. And I had one left over after uh, exams and I decided to just take it and see what happened. And I had the greatest day. I just had a wonderful day. I said, I, I just felt happy and, you know, it was just euphoric. And um, I said, I, when the day was over, I said, well, I'm never going to do that again because I could get hooked on those. And he started laughing as he was writing his notes. And I said, what's so funny? And he said, it's probably the only drug you should have taken. Oh. So it was a stimulant? Yeah. It's dexedrine, which is what mm -hmm. I'm on now. So mm -hmm. it did something to my system you know, that made me feel good. And that's the difference. I think somebody without ADHD, you know, would be hopped up. And I wasn't, I was just like relaxed and happy, you know, so I think that's, can be one of the ways that you can tell if it is really ADHD or not. So did he give you the tests then and you took them and you were like, oh my gosh, this is what's been going on. I remember taking a test and, um, I know he gave me some medication and I don't even remember which one it was. I think he might have given me Wellbutrin too. But then when I moved to New Jersey, I had a different psychiatrist and I do remember taking some sort of test with him. I think he wanted to reconfirm, you know, since he was a new psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I passed with flying colors. <laughs> so when you were diagnosed with ADHD, did the diagnosis really make sense to you? Did you look back and, and think, oh my gosh, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, that these are the symptoms that I've always wondered about, and now I recognize them as clearly ADHD? You know, oddly enough, that didn't happen to me until right before I joined your group. Like, I, I guess I, I didn't get it, because I always thought of ADHD as something that little boys had, you know, and bouncing off walls and, and you know, punching people, and I never <laughs> was like that, so... Um, I thought, all right, I guess, it, you know, maybe that's why it's hard to focus. Like, I didn't research it. I didn't, you know, I just wanted to feel better. And um, as time has gone on, because then I got hit with menopause and PTSD from 9-11 because I was downtown. And the between the three of them, I was really struggling, you know. And I finally said, you know, I have to really look at this ADHD because this might be really the problem because I was feeling so bad about myself. You know, like I, I just don't have the, the focus I used to have, the drive I used to have, you know, and a lot of that is PTSD and a lot of that is menopause. But when I started to really research it and I, especially in women, you know, because I was really looking at the way men, you know, kind of described it. Mm -hmm. Um I was, oh my gosh, that's exactly what's been going on. And I'm not, you know, it's not because I'm a procrastinator. You know, my mother used to call me that all the time. And, you know, it's not because, uh, you know, I just can't stay still on one subject. You know, it's, it's my ADHD. And I learned that actually in many ways, it's what's created my, my life and my career. So... I, I don't hate it. I just want to figure out workarounds. And that's why I joined your group and why I'm so thrilled with it. So Fran, I want you to tell our listeners a little bit about your childhood, how you did in school, you know, the typical questions that we normally ask. I, I remember, you know, being very confused because I knew I was really smart, but I was not getting good grades. And I, it, it, it confounded me because in school, I was getting certainly A's in anything to do with the arts, but all the other things were like C's, D's, E's, even F's. And I would, I thought I was doing the homework and doing things. I don't remember rebelling, you know, but I, I would just get these awful grades and I, I, I just never figured it out, you know, and because at home, I taught myself how to do an appendectomy, you know, <laughs> by reading the medical books that my mother had. <laughs> I learned shorthand in an evening and freaked my sister out who was, was going to school for it. You know, I just said, oh, say something. And I just started writing it in shorthand. And she was like, Shh. <laughs> damn it. Why? How do you know that? And I was like, oh, I just read your book. 
And, you know, I knew I was smart. I was writing scripts for my favorite TV shows as a kid, you know, and yet I just couldn't jive like in the school system. And I remember in high school, there was one teacher, it was a history class, which normally I would hate, but there was one teacher who just engaged my brain because I noticed that he had this technique where he would say an untrue fact and then he would turn his back on the class and like make like he was cleaning the blackboard and he would wait until people went, huh? You know, and started raising their hand and they would go, um, I don't, I don't think that's true. And he go, oh, really? Why? And he would get people to think and to talk about, you know, what, their opinions. And I realized, you know, that most of when I was growing up, maybe they teach differently now, but it was rote. You know, it was just learn this, memorize it, say it back to me. And I just found that so boring. You know, so well, it's not the best way to learn, is it? No, it's awful. It's a really awful way to learn. And I've got like really good grades in his class because he engaged me, you know, and I and I just think that there's a lot of teachers that like take the, the easy road. Maybe not now. You know, I mean, we're talking about 100 years ago. So, oh, I think that's still now. I mean, I think you have some really excellent teachers, but. <laughs> Given that my son is just now coming out of the high school system, I will tell you that they're few and far between. Right. I mean, I think we've been doing the same thing for 150 years, you know, right. in education, sadly. So, right. well, it, it was it was very demoralizing. You know, it was it was one of the things that like, really confounded me. And thank God, you know, I had the art classes where I knew I was getting A's. And so I would say, well, I guess I'm just an artist. And that's, you know, my family was fine with it. My family was not like on me about getting great grades. You know, they, they had like their own issues with education from their, their childhoods, which were very poor. And so they were just do as well as you can, you know, but you're an artist. You know, they were happy with that, that I was an artist. So I didn't really have that extra pressure, you know, that maybe some people do with their parents really hammering on them to get good grades. Yeah. Okay. So you graduated from high school and then did you go on to college or what did you do? Yeah, I went to college, but I, I, there was an issue. Um, it was Monmouth University, which was Monmouth College at the time, and they were filled up in their art department. So they put me in general education for three semesters. And I had to walk by the art studios and smell the paint and all this. And I just was like, this is insane. You know, I would go every semester and say, is there room yet? I was the art editor of the yearbook while I was a freshman. And yet I couldn't get in the art department. And so I, I met this guy on campus and he said, really? He goes, I'm in the art department and I don't even want to be. And I went, oh my God, I'm out of here. And but I've, parents had some financial difficulties and I went, you know, I don't need to be here. Let's, let's end this. And I just went into the workforce as an artist and that was it. So what do you mean you went into the workforce as an artist? Like, how do you do that? Like, how did you know what to do? Well, I mean, I, I had like, you know, crap jobs, but I would just do posters for people back then. I mean, it was not digital. You know, so everything was by hand, kind of. So I would just make money here and there, selling paintings, doing portraits for people. And then um, as time wore on, I learned how to do graphic design, which was still not digital. I mean, it was by hand, you know, literally pasting type down on a page. And I actually got a job. And, and I always tell people to think outside the box because I wanted a job in art. You know, and I was probably in my early 20s and there was just never any in the paper in Jersey. It was never like, you know, artists needed, you know. And so right. <laughs> I said, you know what? I need money. So I'm going to do temp work. And I was good at clerical stuff because I like to organize. And so I said, that will get me inside corporations. And then once I'm in, I can ask around about the art department and maybe get a job that way. So I don't know what made me come up with this idea, but it actually worked. And after, I don't know, six months or so, I was in a corporation and it turned out that one of the other gals that I had temped with was now working there. And 
she said, I told her, oh, what's the art department like? She said, you know, there used to be an artist here and he left and they still have his office, but they never filled it. And (laughs) that's how I got my first real art job. You said something really interesting. You said that you were really good at temp jobs because you love to organize. Mm -hmm. And my first thought is, well, that doesn't sound ADHD, (laughs) but you know, I was, I mean, so my question is, did it come naturally to you or was it? Okay. It was, uh, I was always very messy and I used to call it explosions. Like my room would have explosions all around, which were <laughs> little projects I was doing. And I didn't like to put it away because I was still in the middle of it, you know? So there would be a big bunch of junk over here and there and that. And my mother was like, uh, I don't know, OCD or something, you know? And, and this made her crazy. And, you know, she was kind of a, a, a violent gal. <laughs> shall we say. And so this caused a lot of problems for me. You know, she would go insane. I mean, it was like, you know, uh, Joan, what? what, what Crawford? Yeah. Mommy Crawford. Mommy Dearest with the hangers, you know. Oh, no. She was awful about that. It just made her nuts. And then when I left college, I went to live with my Aunt Annie, her sister, and my cousin Sue. And my Aunt Annie was a widow. And she like was very good at like balancing her checkbook and all this kind of stuff. And I never, my mother never taught me any of that stuff. Nobody did. And so she was like, oh, you have to learn this and you have to learn that and you have to be organized. And she taught me that. And I started to realize that I could get way more accomplished if I could get organized. You know, it was like, because when things were just a pile, it just became like mush to me. Mm -hmm. You know, I couldn't uh, function. My brain would just kind of fizz out. And so that's when I started to learn organization and the power of it. If you know how to find your tools quickly, you will do more, you know. If your brain is disorganized, Mm -hmm. you can't also have your surroundings disorganized. I mean, and, and it goes on to this day. I mean, I'm still naturally messy and I still have explosions, but I create these systems. And so when it's time to clean up, I know where everything goes. You know, everything and, has and a you're place. one of the few people that you've really thought through how your brain works around organization. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not like the stereotypical, you know, I should say neurotypical brain. I mean, you've really thought out how the ADHD is able to retrieve information best. I, I think so, because of the friends of mine that do have ADHD, and there are many because I'm, I'm a creative person, so my friends are creative people, and I kind of think it kind of goes hand in hand. There's very few really creative people that I know that I don't think have it, you know, just from behaviors that they have. They may not, you know, identify as it, but I can see a lot of the behaviors. Um, but, absolutely, uh, you know, I could see that it, it was similar to them, you know, as well. And a lot of these systems, you know, I actually would go in and organize people for money. You know, I would go and create offices for them and uh, I would analyze what it is they do. And then the big thing was, and this I got from a wonderful professional organizer named Sunny Schlanger, and she and I were friends, and she explained that you can't force somebody into a system that doesn't feel natural to them. So the trick is creating the system to fit what they naturally tend to do. So if somebody comes in the door and they naturally throw their keys to the right, you know, you put a table there or, you know, a ledge or something. You don't try to make them go into another room and open a file and put it in there, you know. And I think that's been the key to a lot of what I've come up with for me and then also for other people. I, I literally say, what do you naturally do? What would you, you know, how does this mess occur? Let me see. And then I try to figure out a system that fits that rather than the traditional systems that, you know, offices use. Right. And we keep buying, you know, the different planners and the file cabinets and the file folders. And no matter how hard we try, <laughs> yeah, a week later, I, it's a big I me with my final one now, which is a black one that's got two levels on it and it's on wheels and it's open. Like it's not a big, heavy thing. And I can wheel it over to wherever I'm working. Because I find I really hate going to a file cabinet and bending over and standing 
while I'm yeah. trying to file or look something up. So I don't file a lot of things because, you know, I, I think it's more for, should be archival, you know. Um, I use clipboards and folders for things that are current. But when I do, I don't want to have to do that. I want to sit on the sofa and watch TV while I file, you know. I have to have my brain doing something fun. Well, and you're the one who taught me that it's all about easy in and out. For our brains, if there's 50 steps, we're yeah. not going to do it. But if we make it super easy, we will do it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's go back. So you were in the art department. And then what happened after that? Because you have had so many different careers. Well, I got interested in acting. And I didn't think I would. But I, I had gone to the local college to take another art course for something to do at night. And I happened to have taken all the courses that they had. You know, this was not for credit. It was just like a night course. And I noticed that there was this improvisational theater class and it had this picture of this very handsome black man who looked like Sidney Poitier. And he was directing (laughs) these two actors. And I went, ooh, that looks interesting. And the woman at the office, you know, uh, at the college said, well, it's actually starting in half an hour. Why don't you go over and see if he'll take you? And she said, I'm sure he will. And I was like, oh, um, I didn't expect to be called on it, you know, so... And I had always had a fear that I wouldn't be able to memorize because of the rote stuff, you know, that I had to learn and I couldn't retain. So I was like, well, it's improvisational. That could be good. That means I don't have to memorize lines. So I went over and I was on stage that night. He threw us up on on the stage and we were improvising and I became part of his theater company. And I started doing plays and, and playing the leads and all these classic plays and but he was very avant-garde. He had been with La Mama in New York. And, you know, he um, he's a friend of mine to this day. He's like 90 years old, 90-something years old. He's fabulous. But he opened up this whole new world for me. And so I started. An interesting thing was I was I remember thinking, wow, this is like painting, except it comes alive. Like I can paint a person, because I usually did portraits and people, you know, that was what interested me. So I said, I can do like a portrait, but I do it with my whole body and my voice. So it was to me like an extension of just drawing, you know, I'm just drawing with my whole being. Yeah. You know, so that became the beginning. And then I eventually moved into New York, you know, I started studying in New York and I uh, moved in. And had to come up with ways to make a living. And I found that I was not good at a regular job, you know, a nine to five job. I did not flourish in that environment. So I had to come up with ways to make money using my skills. And it was always different because sometimes one way would dry up and now I had to figure out what else can I do? And I would just kind of forge ahead into that field. And it was kind of always fueled by this need, you know, to pay the rent. Of course, I waitress too in the meantime, you know, in between things too. I mean, I, I, I wasn't like a dilettante about it, but, you know, I got better money if I did art. What did that lead to then in terms of, well, I know you did a lot of voiceover work. You had a really yeah. successful career, I understand. Yeah, I had, a, had about a 20-year career in voiceovers, and I found that that was really good because it was fast and quick, you know, uh, you would just arrive for the booking and you would read the script and within minutes you'd be in front of the microphone and you would be performing and then you would be done in an hour and a half. And it like, it was, it fit my, you know, brain, like uh, not having to drag things out. I like to do things, you know, very spur of the moment kind of thing. So, um, I was really good at that and it ticked off a lot of the boxes, you know, what would always get me in trouble was anything that had too many moving parts. That's the way I, it would come out in my head. Oh, this has too many moving parts, too many moving parts. Like if it's just too many things I have to juggle within it, you know. And yet I became a filmmaker and produced my own films and, and organized that whole thing. And I, my sets, were, I was told by people that did extra work that it was one of the most organized sets I'd ever been on. This is the thing with ADHD. When it interests you, yeah, you go in full on. You know, there's no problems. It's only when it doesn't interest you or it did interest you, but now it doesn't, that, 
you know, you get into trouble. Totally. So for the listeners, I met you online, actually, through ADHD for Smartass Women. And this was 2018, I think in October. And shortly thereafter, we met in New York City. And I remember that before we met, I kind of wanted to know who you were. Because it was totally impromptu. And I went on your website and there was literally a list a mile long of all of these things that you had accomplished. And I had never seen anything like it. And what was so crazy to me was how, for lack of a better word, schizophrenic it was. I mean, it (laughs) may as well have said playwright, welder, fighter pilot, opera (laughs) singer, right? There was literally nothing you hadn't done from, you know, being a playwright to a director, actor, photographer, artist, graphic designer, interior designer, activist. You did advertising. You did branding. You were a professional organizer. You had done home staging. I mean, what I learned about you was that your brain was literally the pinnacle of ADHD perfection. Like you had so many interests They were so diverse. And as long as you could do it your way and there was interest there, you were going to figure it out. And it it wasn't just figuring it out by like dabbling in it. If you were interested, you were going to become an expert at it. And that I did. Sorry, but you know what I did when I decided I wanted to actually direct films and write write and direct films, which I didn't think I was allowed to do because I was a woman. And so I was, you know, in my late uh, 30s, early 40s before I even thought I could do it. But what I did, I used to have this cottage and I didn't have TV there, so I had to rent movies. And I would rent these movies and I would sit there, like movies I liked, you know, like romantic comedies and things like that, that were the kind of genre I liked. And I would have a, a pad in front of me. And anytime something got me, I would write down exactly what happened. You know, like, oh, that's what, that was sexy. And I'd write down what was sexy, you know, and then I'd write down, I just analyzed as I went along. And then I, I made a list of those things. I, I, you know, put all the things that were sexy in one list and all the things that were moving in another list, one of the things that made me laugh out loud in another list. And then I learned to incorporate that stuff in my writing and my directing. So you basically taught yourself. Yeah. I've taught myself pretty much every single thing I do. So tell me, when we talk about ADHD traits, what are the traits that you see every day and during the course of all your varying careers that you feel are really responsible for your success? Curiosity Mm. is a very big thing. As a matter of fact, I bumped into an old boyfriend of mine from back when I was like 19, 20. And he said, you know, the main thing I remember about you back then is that you were so curious about everything. And I said, really? And he said, yeah, you had to know everything. And this was before the internet, (laughs) you know, and he could actually look it up. (laughs) So I think that's been with me my whole life, you know. So I think the spontaneity thing, you know, the impulsivity, even though it can get you in trouble, it also can... Uh, propel you forward when maybe another person might go, oh, well, wait a minute, I have to do this, this, and this, and this before I do that. Or I don't even know how to do it, right? Yeah. Well, that never stopped me. And that's (laughs) one of the things I tell people. I never lied, but I got jobs that I didn't know how to do because I said, look, like when I became a producer, uh, I, I produced TV promos and I had already produced radio. And I also did storyboards, uh, you know, and was an artist. So I went in and I said, look, I know how to do the audio and I know how to do the visual because I do the storyboards and all that. I think I can put them together, you know, and do and, and do the, do a really good job with this. She's, and it was a woman and she said, yeah, let's give you a try. And I didn't. And I became one of their, you know, steady freelancers. So it's like I, my big thing is never lie. Don't say you know how to do something that you don't because then you're screwed. Because if you get in the job and now you need to know, you know, mm-hmm. some information, you can't ask. You know, I would just ask people. I learned better by doing that. You know, people telling me stuff or showing me rather than book learning. You yeah, know, I, I've, experiential learning kind of. I can't remember who who I heard this from. It's so me, and I'm sure you can relate to it as well. You know, when people are like, well, how do you write a book? Well, I learn how to write a book by writing a book. (laughs) Yeah. 
yeah, and you make some mistakes along the way, and then the next time you do it, you don't make those mistakes. But, you know, you just be willing to do that. You know, you got to be willing to make some mistakes here and there. So you don't have a fear of failure at all. It sounds like you don't see, you don't even believe in failure because you're learning something. No, I believe in it. (laughs) I believe in it a lot. It it smacked me in the face quite a few times. But the failure to me has not been in my failure to conquer the thing, Mm -hmm. but my failure to get it out into the larger world. Ah. You know, it's to convince the people that are the keepers of the gate, you know, to buy into it. And yet, you know, the average person, like when I do theater and all that and films, anybody who sees my stuff loves it, but it's just getting it past those lines at the gate. And I just don't have that quality, you know, that kind of, because I have that rejection sensitive thing, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So when, you know, I, I lived a very solitary life. I was the baby you know, in my family, my brother and sister were seven and eight years older. So I amused myself. That was what my mother always said was my greatest quality. <laughs> Freddie's greatest quality is her ability to amuse herself. So I would just, I commandeered the basement and I was down there and I was, you know, I, I built a, a, a replica of the Beatles instruments out of like plywood and whatever wood I found down there. I mean, I was always doing stuff. But the good part of it was because I, I, I have friends that have parents that meddled in everything and they got screwed up a different way. <laughs> but um, the good news was no one cared what I was doing down there. So I was the only one who was the arbiter about whether or not I succeeded or not. So I, I learned, you know, I knew when I did made something that didn't come out as good as I wanted it to. And I knew when it did. So I had great confidence and still do when I know I did a good job or when something is is really good and brilliant even. I know that. But what gets me is when I present it to somebody and they don't get it, you know, and it's usually, I got to say, it's usually people that are higher up, you know, like people that sit in offices, mm-hmm. not like the people that They're you, not the artists. Like, they're not the creators. They're not the artists and they're not the audiences. Mm-hmm. Like audiences loved it, you know, whatever I would do. It was really those people that like, hmm, you know, and they're looking at all different criteria. And when they wouldn't, you know, if they didn't accept it or move it, you know, along, I was devastated. And not because I thought, oh, I must not be talented. It was more like ah, pearls before swine. (laughs) 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 You know, but it was like frustrating. It was like, I'll never break through. Because these they, people, it's this sense that you can't get them to understand. Is that yeah. it? Yeah, I can't get them yeah. to get it. And yeah. so many of the things I see now was like it was before I was before my time. The, you know, I was coming up with these things before people were ready for it. And now mm-hmm. they do it all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I mean, I was writing and directing and performing in my own work, and that was like blew a lot of people's minds because women didn't do that. Guys did it, but women didn't. And now, some of my favorite TV shows are all written, produced, and starring the 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 actress that you know came up with the concept. Now it's normal, but back then it was like, "What are you crazy? You know, you'll never be able to do that." And I said, "Yeah, I do it all the time, and I win awards from it." But it was like. You know, a lot of it has to do with sexism, you know, and I hate to say it, but it really does. And that, I just feel like I'm thwarted, you know. And so when that would happen, the rejection would happen, it would devastate me because it rocked my world. Like, you know, my reality got screwed up because it was like, wait a minute, this is, this was fabulous. How, if they don't think it's fabulous, something's wrong in the world, (laughs) you know, like, and I would just kind of crumble and it would take me a long time to um, want to present my stuff again. So sometimes I would then luckily for me, turn my attention to a different art form that I liked and do that for, you know, six months or a year and then maybe, you know, go back to that again, you know, the other one. So that was also, you know, part of why I do so many different things is to get away from the pain. 
Well, it's interesting to me, though, that you also say that you were before your time. And I almost, it feels like those experiences are what shape um, your activism today. Um, mm -hmm. So just so the audience knows, you were in the courtroom when Bill Cosby was sentenced. Did I get that right? Yep. With Gloria Allred. I did, drawings. I did drawings of it because you're not allowed to take pictures in the courtroom. And I was sitting with Gloria Allred and some, some of the survivors that were not um, testifying. And I had been involved with that right from the first time I heard about it was right around when Hannibal Burris brought it to everybody's attention. And I immediately knew that they were telling the truth because I had been uh, drugged and raped when I was in my 30s. And I knew how hard it was to explain that to anybody. Mm -hmm. And so they were being raked over the coals for not having reported it. And I was like, God, back then, there wasn't even the term date rape or anything, you know? Yeah. Like, it, it wasn't even invented, you know? So there was no way you could have gone and reported that, let alone have it be the world's, like, most favored dad, you know? Yeah. It would be like nowadays saying Tom Hanks did that to you. Right. You know, people would be like, what? Get out of here. And they were like that. These women would, some of them would try to go to the police, try tell their, their agents and all that. And the agents would say, you know, would either drop them and, you know, the police just laugh them out of the, you know, of the place. Um, or they would, you know, um, be, you know, told, look, keep it quiet. Hmm. Just keep your mouth shut if you want your job. So that was, you know, that's the time. I mean, people don't realize these women are in their 60s and 70s now. You know, this was like a long time ago when the world was a lot different. But one of the things that really confounds me now is that the Me Too movement doesn't really honor them because they're the ones that started it. You know, they came forward and broke through this wall before any of the, the second wave of it. They were the first wave of the Me Too movement. You're right. Or the, you know, the third wave, because there was originally a woman that came up with the term Me Too. And uh, that was a long time ago. But she, you know, they, they resurrected it for the recent movement. So how did you get involved with that? Like, you just walked up and said, I want to be part of this? Well, it was online. Um, I had read about this, and I loved Bill Cosby. I, you know, as a humorist, I, I had I memorized his albums. I mean, it was not like I disliked this man. I, I thought he was fabulous. And when I first heard, I was like, "What, Bill Cosby?" And one of the things Hannibal Barris said was, uh, "You don't believe me? Just Google his name and rape. See what comes up." Wow. And suddenly, whoa, all this stuff came up. And yet, the women that had come forward. And they didn't know each other. They came forward from all the, over the country when they heard, you know, that this uh, this young woman had he had done it to, and that was the first time it kind of hit the airwaves. And I started reading their stories, and I was like, I totally believe them, but nobody else does. And you know, people were saying the most horrible things about him, and I thought the logic in this is so off. Why would a woman who's like a grandma, yeah. you know? And owns her own business. You know, I mean, these were not like people that needed to be the center of attention. They weren't looking for their 15 minutes of fame. They didn't want to do this even. But they felt they had to because one of the things I've learned about women is women may not stand up for themselves so, a lot of the times, but they will for another woman. Mm. They're stronger when it involves another woman or a child. They will become lions, you know, but not as much to, for themselves. And so that was what fueled every single one of the women that came forward was hearing that the other women were being called liars. And they knew it was true because it happened to them. So that's how the, it built and built. And so I found online there had been a, there was a, a Facebook page that was reporting a lot of the Bill Cosby stuff. And so I noticed that a lot of the things that they put out about it was really amateurish and ugly looking. And so I'm really good at branding. And I offered my services, you know, to brand <laughs> because I said, you know, we got to get this information out and it's got to look better. It's got to be more engaging, you know, to get the information out. So let me please do this for you. So that's how it started. And eventually uh, I and two other women you know, went off on her own and created Believe Women. And um, 
the gal Brandy that I was working with, she created one of the most comprehensive databases of all his rapes that was broken down by every category. So good that the legal system and the criminal justice system was using it Mm. because she had done so much research and, and had analyzed all this. So I was very proud of it. And we got to meet all the women because they were, um, as they were coming forward, they were being attacked, you know, in the press and, and in real life. I, I remember one woman said she went downtown in her little town and somebody came over and spit on her. Oh, I mean, this geez. is what these women were putting up with. And these are, as I said, women in their 50s and 60s and 70s. And so we started to realize that they had been in a vacuum, you know, all this time because they never... They thought it just happened to them. They didn't know this was like he was doing this to a lot of people. Right. And so they and they kept quiet because who are they going to tell? I mean, some of these women had to grow up, had to raise children who watched the Bill Cosby show. Oh, you know, and they, they couldn't bear it, you know, especially because he was so idolized, you know. So um, they were really getting twisted by this. And so we created a private chat room on Messenger uh, just for them and invited them in as they came forward. So they got to meet each other. And they actually, over the period of, you know, however many years that this went on, they've been healing each other. And they went on to become activists, and they're the ones going around the country changing the statute of limitation laws. But in the beginning, they were like, like, you know, broken birds. Right. And that's what community does, right? Yeah, Regardless if it's, you know, this situation or even, you know, our ADHD I, community. I think absolutely. It has changed me. I mean, I, when I found the group, it was, I had just begun to say, you know, I don't think this is me. I think this is the ADHD thing that's causing a lot of this stuff, you know, that I felt shame about, you know, because I, it would thwart me in all my, you know, endeavors. And it was also the thing that I would get yelled at, you know, and punished for when I was a child. And here I was reading about that. It's just part of this whole, uh, you know, way of thinking. Yeah. And yeah. And so um, when I joined the group, I joined a couple of others too at the same time. And I just dropped out of them because they were just kind of whiny. <laughs> and what I really liked about your group was that it was like, yeah, this is, this is a superpower. This is how my brain works. And um, let's just figure out how to make it work better even, you know, and that I just got on board, you know, 110% with that. So you did. So Fran, what do you think the key to living successfully with ADHD is? I think it's like not, it's, it's letting go of the norm and following what fascinates you. Uh, it, it kills me when I hear women say, I have this job that I hate, and I, but I go to every day and I'm not even that good at it and I'm constantly being berated for it, but, you know, it's my job. And I'm like, oh my God, no, that can't be your life. You know, don't do that to yourself. You're not good at it because you don't like it. It doesn't interest you. You got to find what interests you. And so many of the women, when when people post, what do you do for a living? You know, that that kind of thing. You'll mm-hmm. see that they'll say, well, you know, for years I, I worked in this job and I really hated it. But now I'm a firefighter, <laughs> you know, yeah. and I love it, you know, and it's the looking at your brain and what your brain is good at and then then figuring out what job fits that, you know? I mean, I knew I was not good at nine to five. First of all, I'm a night owl. I have that delayed sleep phase disorder thing where I don't go to sleep till four in the morning, as you know. (laughs) But but I've created a life where I can get up at noon, you know, or one or two even. And that's the life that works best for me. My brain is really, really sharp late at night. So I've created a life where I work on my own schedule for, for the most part. And even when I work with clients, I don't make appointments before 2, 2 p.m. because I know I'm going to just be groggy through most of it, you know. So I've, I've paid very close attention to that. 
And when I had to do a nine to five job, it was hell, you know, because I mean, I had to get up at like seven. That's like the crack of stupid to me. If that's like, <laughs> I used to say, this is like going on a fishing trip. This is not going to work. <laughs> this is like getting up in the dark, you know, making the sandwiches to go on the fishing trip. <laughs> I was like, this sucks. <laughs> and I know- but I think we get sucked into this idea that, and we've talked about this before. I'm a, I'm an early bird, but I'm also a night owl. I just don't need a lot of sleep. Yeah, some but people the thing not. is that if you if you are one of these people where you just work better at night, you have the sense that if you don't get up at the crack of dawn, you're lazy. You know, it's a character yeah. flaw. Oh, that's been like it's ingrained in us. I think it's the farmer mentality. Yeah, it's farmers and we're hunters. Up, you know, <laughs> yeah. Farmers have to get up at the at the crack of dawn, you know, and feed the chickens and stuff. We don't. <laughs> if you if you find your brain isn't functioning that well, I bet I bet that's a lot of what the, a lot of the women that do office work and are always getting in trouble. It might very well be that they're you know they're just not their brain isn't at its at its you know peak when they're at work. Yeah, and they're probably bored out of their gourd, oh, too, because they're creatives. I, I think every, you brought this up, I remember you posted something, and I think I've read it on this podcast before. I just thought it was so brilliant because you brought up about how you feel that, and I agree, that all ADHD brains are creative, but I think a lot of women feel like, well, if I'm not in the arts, some form of the arts, then oh, that means yeah. I'm not creative. Yeah, they don't, they don't realize creative just means an, a way of thinking. Uh-huh. You know, it's not necessarily, you know, I hate when people go, oh, I'm not creative. I can't draw a, a straight line. It's like, well, a lot of artists can't draw a straight line either, but that has nothing to do with being creative, being able to draw a straight line. You know, it's like your way of thinking, you know, you think around the issue, you know. I think a lot of, one of the things that's really been great about this group is discovering the various symptoms, which are actually you know, superpowers that come with ADHD that I never quite defined. You know, I didn't realize that that was what that was. But yeah. like my ability to to see things uh, in the future, like not 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 woo woo, but I mean, somebody will say, um, "I think I want to do it this way," and and I look at the way they want to do it, and I just fast forward in my head as to what's going to happen with that, and then I can see whether it's going to fail or not right away. You know, and I go, no, nah, you can't do it that way because blah 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 will happen. And then they're like, what? You know, <laughs> it's like <laughs> they, they oh. have to make a mistake. Yeah, it's like I think that's that's a skill that we that some of us have. You know, which is that we are thinking faster and more ahead than than a lot of other people. And I recently posted about this because I, you know, it frustrates me, and sometimes I. I get very blunt about it. <laughs> and that's, you know, I think that the people that work with me, when I get to that stage, they realize, well, I got to put up with this because she's really good at what she does. But, you know, if people aren't catching up to me, it's it very frustrating, you know, when I'm trying to explain something and, and uh, you know, they're, they're sticking to this uh, stupid, you know, thing, like opinion that doesn't have anything to do with what I'm talking about. You know, it's like, no, I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about further down the line. This is what's going to happen. And they can't see that far ahead, you know? Right. So I got to go, well, all right, you're just going to have to experience it then. I was trying to save you. <laughs> but but no. you won't listen. But you won't listen. <laughs> Yeah, and then we we definitely do not like to be told what to do. <laughs> yeah. Actually, you know, it's funny. I don't mind that when I know the other person's an expert. I agree with you 100% on that. Yeah. Like, I won't listen to anybody about, like, design and aesthetics. But if you tell me it should be this way, I listen because I trust it. Right. So I agree. That's like, that's why, you know, the, the recent post was about this client of mine. And... um you know, he'll just argue with me on the stupidest points and it's stuff he doesn't know anything about. And it's like, you know, I say, I would never dream of telling you how to do real estate law. You know, why are you arguing this with me? You clearly don't know anything about video editing. You know, why are you arguing with this with me? You know, you know, I've won awards for this. Let me do what I do, what you're paying me to do. You know, I'm trying to save you, you know, heartache in the future. 
Totally. Okay, so I've got one last question for you, Fran, and uh-huh. then we'll wrap up. What is your number one ADHD workaround? I know you have many. I have many. I know. I was thinking about this the other day, and I'm trying to think of what I came up with because I, it's like there's some of that are like global workarounds, you know, mm-hmm. um, but you know those planners that I designed that that you like too. They've been very helpful, you know, because I cannot find a planner that I, I just look at them and. I'll be kind of intrigued. And then the more I look at him, I go, ah, this is too complicated. My brain just shut down, you know, and I, I had to make a, my own planner that is very simple and, and allowed a lot of flexibility, you know, so that could be, you know, probably the most overall greatest workaround was coming up with that planning system. Well, and it makes sense because if we can't get out of our brain what's in there and put it on paper, we're not going to remember. Yeah. And so, and that's probably where I learned from you this whole idea of number one, out of sight, out of mind, yeah. and it's got to be in and out easy because yeah. if it's not in and out, we're just not going to use it. So I would absolutely agree. I mean, I'm still using your planner and it's been over a year and I have never been able to use a planner. Wow. Well, I think that's, that's helped me a lot. And I've used it all through my, you know, probably for uh, 30 something years. You know, I came up with it a long time ago. And especially because back then is when I used to do voiceovers. And my, my week consisted of a lot of appointments all over town. And everybody would carry, this was before cell phones, right? So everyone would carry these huge planners with them in their purses that were filled with every important piece of paper that they own. Mm-hmm. And my, my fear was like, but if you lose that, you've lost everything, you know, and it weighs a ton and you're carrying it all around the city. So when I designed my planners, I designed them to be one week at a time. And then when you finish with it, you just, you know, you know, match it up with the other ones in the week. And now you got the month and you have a record. But if I were to lose it in the course of a day, I, I didn't lose everything. You know, I just lost my plans for that week. And um, that was like one of the biggest, you know, changes for me because it just seemed ridiculous and scary, you know, to be carrying every every piece of information that's important to you uh, in your purse. It could get stolen. Well, especially (laughs) especially with our brains too. It could also you could leave it on the spot right easily. You know, yeah. But I have one other workaround that I'm very proud of, and it's a recent one. Which is, and it's a problem that a lot of the women talk about, which is doing laundry. Ah, you know, and so the you do the laundry, and then the clo- the the clean clothes are are just all around, and you get so overwhelmed, and you're done, and they stay like you know in balls all over the <laughs> room for days and days, and so I, this would happen to me too, and and so I said I've got to figure out this thing. So what I did was I got this, I, I, I should post it. I got this um, wheelie uh, thing, you know, that you can hang clothes on, but it, but it folds up uh, and slides away. It's like it tucks away. Like it's not like one of those things that you have to figure out a place to put it. Mm-hmm. And when I'm doing uh, the, you know, folding and all that kind of stuff, I, I open it up, I wheel it over to where I'm sitting, I, I allow myself to rent a movie, you know, even though I have all these, you know, channels, I may not have what I really want, so <laughs> I give myself the movie I really want to watch. So it's a treat, it's, it's a, a, treat. Yeah, a reward. Yeah. It's a treat. And then I have all my hangers already on there. So I can just immediately hang them up because otherwise I was having to lay them all around where I was and, or get up and take them to the various closets. And that was adding way more moving parts than needed. So the fact that I could basically stay in one place and complete it during the span of two hours of a movie, you know, um, it works. Brilliant to me. And I'm very and proud. You don't end up having to rewash everything because it's all wrinkled in a yes. ball. Oh, and the <laughs> other thing is that spray, that downy uh, wrinkle releaser. I never iron anymore. I just buy tons of that downy wrinkle releaser. And you, as you as you put it on the hanger, you just spray it with this and wipe it with your hand, and you wipe away all the wrinkles. 
Oh my God. Okay. I'm writing that down. That sounds <laughs> Down wrinkle releaser. It's, it's actually kind of expensive, but if you want to save money, you just buy downy fabric softener and add water to it <laughs> <laughs> and, and shake it up in a spray bottle, you know, and, and it'll do pretty much the same thing. Plus well, the I love, I love that tip. Dollar love it. has it too. Like a so Fran, drink. you are the epitome of the brilliant creative ADHD woman. Well, thank you. I guess we'd call you a true Renaissance woman, a modern Renaissance woman. How about that? Yeah. I honestly believe that like, literally there is nothing you can't do or you haven't already done. Well, I don't except dance. For- don't ask me. I don't dance. <laughs> <laughs> well, I always say that. It's like I'm not really a great dancer. <laughs> oh, dancing or and also I'm not going to ask you to get up early in the morning. Oh, How no. about that one? No, never do that. Never. <laughs> well, never anyway, thank you so much for spending time with us here today. So if people want to find you, if they want to know more about you and what you do and all that, where can they do that? Uh, they can go to francescarizzo.com, which is my website, which, you know, has a bunch of stuff, but it needs to be updated. Uh, and or, or find me on Facebook and, like, just look at all my pictures and stuff in my Facebook photos, and you'll see an awful lot of stuff that you probably didn't know about. You did this great thing, and I think you're going to go back to doing it, where every week... You do this transformation, like hair, makeup, everything. Yeah. You've been men, you've been old women, you've been young. Yes. I mean, it's, it's amazing. I call it another week, another wig. And yeah. what I do is uh, I only give myself about an hour to do it because otherwise, you know, anybody could do it if you take all day. So my idea is to prove that transformation can be really easy and quick, like that we don't have to be what we are right now if we don't want to be. And so I'll use a wig to start it off and I'll put it on. I'll start to get an idea of, hmm, who could this be? And then I start playing with makeup to match and find a shirt or top to go with it. And then I start to get a feel for the character. I get my selfie stick. I start uh, taking pictures and I find backdrops, you know, in my house somewhere that's a little different. Sometimes I'll go outside just so the backdrop fits the character. And then... um, Afterwards, I really enjoy is I use all those apps in my phone to play with it and change, you know, digital stuff to change the lighting and mood and all that. And then um, I post it online and so many of my friends are so creative and even the ones that aren't in the creative business, you know, they just are that kind of mind. And I ask them to tell me who, who is this person? And then they all write these wonderful descriptions and characters that they come up with based on the image that I've created. And so um, when I get back into it, I, I stopped when my sister got ill and I, I just lost my Jones for it. But I'm going to get back into it. And when I do, I'm going to eventually make a book out of it because I think it's just fascinating, especially because is- I'm 68 years old. It's you know? amazing. I mean, it is truly amazing. So people are going to have to go follow you to figure out what we're even talking about. Yeah, because it's- but they would be all in my photos because I post them. So if you went through my photo library there, you'll see them. I think I even, I don't know if I created a folder for them. But so that's Francesca Joy Rizzo. That's the Facebook Yeah, Francesca page. Joy Rizzo on Facebook. Okay. And then okay. there's also a, a Facebook page called Francesca Unlimited which has all my interior design and artsy stuff. And then there's also uh, Great Dames Media, which has this play that I've been uh, developing called Dames Like Us. And you'll see all sorts of images and videos from that. So Fran, will you please um, send me, make sure that I have all those links so I can post them in the show notes? Absolutely. Perfect. Well, again, Fran, thank you so much. You're quite welcome. Love talking to you. Thank you for even starting this whole thing in the first place. You really, you really changed my life. I don't oh. think you realize it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay. So that's what we have for you for this week. As always, you're listening to ADHD for Smart Ass Women. If you liked this episode with Fran, please let us know by leaving a review. Our goal is to change the conversation around ADHD, helping as many women as we possibly can learn how their ADHD brains work so that they too can discover their amazing strengths. And your reviews, they really help in that regard. For me, they're like those little gold stars we used to get on our work when we were kids in school. 
One more thing, if you've got a comment, a guest you'd like me to interview, or a topic idea for this podcast, you can go to my website at tracyoutsuka.com and leave me an audio message or reach out to me at tracy at tracyoutsuka.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you here next week. You've been listening to the ADHD for Smartass Women podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Otsuka, and we're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Play. If you liked what you heard, we sure would appreciate a review. And not coincidentally, ADHD for Smartass Women, well, that's also the name of our free Facebook group. Go look it up. We're a totally smart-ass community of successful, ambitious women who share our ADHD wins, questions, and workarounds. We'd love to have you join us. You can also find all my details over at tracyoutsuka.com. Don't forget, I spy a happier life for us, and I'll see you again next week.